0: Welcome to The Rerouted Podcast with Francesca Maxime, trauma-sensitive mindfulness meditation teacher and poet. Together, we'll take a closer look at approaches to transforming trauma with insights from psychology, neuroscience, spirituality, social justice, and the creative arts. Join Francesca and her guests for an exploration of our shared connection and how we can cultivate greater compassion for ourselves and for others. If you'd like to support Francesca and the Rerooted podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Francesca.
1: Hey, everybody. I'm Francesca Maxime. Thanks so much for joining us for this edition of Rerooted, where we really invite you to discover your own inner wisdom and where you're rooted, not only to yourself, but actually to the land that you're on. Like right now, I'm on Lanape land. Um, This is indigenous land that happens to be now known as Brooklyn. And um, I hail from many different places. Ancestors from Africa through Haiti, through Chicago to Boston and then New York. And uh, on the Italian side, you know, all my folks over there came many moons ago. And then, of course, my Dominican side, um, which is a whole other story of being this mixed ethnicity uh, mash mashup, mashup. And, um, and so that's what I carry. And that's what I'm bringing into this conversation today a little bit. And I'd invite you to explore what you carry um, and see if you can do it without any kind of judgment or, you know, kind of good or bad or right or wrong, but just that mindful approach of bringing attention to the present moment. And as you listen to our conversation with the guest I'm going to introduce in a moment, I would just invite you to sort of Think about, huh, what's happening in my body as we're talking about this or as I'm listening to this? Where am I getting tight? Where do I want to check out? Do I want to press pause? Do I want to jump out? (laughs) Do I want to fight? What do I want to do? And see if we can just notice that and get curious about it as we go along. I promise it's not going to be too painful. It's just a podcast, but it is an invitation and an exploration of something that um, the guest today, Patty Dye, uh, D I G H, uh, calls hard conversations. Uh, an Introduction to Racism. It's a course that she offers online that I've taken, which I really found to be so helpful. And it's just really doing on, you know, doing the work of, of, of racism, really understanding where this comes from. It's a month-long online seminar program hosted by author, speakers, and social justice activists, uh, Patty Dye and Victor Lee Lewis. It was featured in the film, The Color of Fear. Uh, with help from a community of people who want and are willing to help us understand the reality of racism by telling their stories and sharing their resources. So, without further ado, Patty
2: Dye. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> thank Thanks for having me on.
1: Yeah, it's it's really a pleasure. Thank you for um, thank you for doing this kind of work. And um, for those who aren't watching the video and who are just listening, um, Patty, how would you self-identify? <laughs> I would identify as
2: a a very white woman of a certain age. Um, I am Southern, uh, raised Southern Baptist. So that's in my background. And I bring all that forward with me. Um, I I would identify as a social justice educator more than anything else. Excuse me. And as a writer around these issues.
1: Beautiful. So, um, so For all of that, this is work you've been doing for 30 years, Um, it's been a long time going, and you've been offering this online class for the last four or five years. So talk to me a little bit about um, what got you into starting to do work around um, social justice and undoing racism. Um,
2: I think there are two main influences from my life. One was I was an exchange student to Sri Lanka from this very small Southern town that I lived in, with not very much racial diversity at all. And I end up living with a Sinhalese family, a Buddhist family in Sri Lanka, and uh, there was just some sort of opening. I had never even been on an airplane before, so it wasn't that I had experienced any part of the world. And here I find myself with a group of people who are vastly unlike me in terms of how we look. And we had so much in common. I was 16 years old and had no fear of being in this different culture and took away from that a lot, a lot of things that I thought about, um, not only about the people that I lived with, but about religion, because as I said before, I was raised Southern Baptist, and here I am studying with Buddhist monks and really looking at a very much broader sense of the world and ourselves in it. Um, And then the second thing was that I went to a Quaker college when I started college and I fell in love with a black man who was this amazing and is this amazing human being. Um, And my parents disowned me as a result of that whole process. So that... What year was that? That was 1978.
1: Hmm.
2: Yeah, 1978. And we, you know, we were the victims of quite a bit of... um, name-calling and spitting and violence in Greensboro, where we were living. And we actually were there during the Greensboro Massacre, um, in which the KKK killed five people in, in daylight um, in downtown Greensboro. Mm. So it was a dangerous time to be in this relationship. And I found myself unmoored in a way because my family you know, said that we can't accept this. Um, That was a big education for me. I was 18, 19 years old and really beginning to see the impact of racism uh, on a very personal level and and certainly the impact that it had on my boyfriend. Um, My parents never met him, so it was all an abstraction for for them. Mm. So that had a profound personal impact on me and on the work that I do in the world. I wanted to... Um, make sure that that doesn't happen, uh, frankly, and uh, educate people. I, I realized at the time when I started this hard conversations online class um, that I could either be really angry about these issues, or I could try and educate people around them. And so I chose to try and educate people. And certainly, it's tough when you have when you add on the layers of parents and family and all that's associated with that and the violence that we were facing in Greensboro. Um, it was a pretty important time in my life and uh, has a direct impact on the work that I do.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really moving story. And I'm so glad that you shared it because I really think it, it puts in place the framework for um, your dedication, your passion, and really um, you know, the seed that was planted early on that is uh, continuing to to grow and flower and benefit um, with all kinds of different fruit. Um, so thank you for that. Um, on a personal note, I, I know also my grandparents weren't all thrilled when my mom, you know, uh, was was with my father uh, as a Haitian and Dominican man with uh, brown skin. And uh, it was interesting because in that case, things didn't work out, not because of his skin color, but because of his own, you know, sort of trauma and conditioning and personality that, that um, you know, wasn't a good long-term fit. But it was, uh, it was interesting that once I was brought home, um, my grandparents did still embrace me and were willing to to raise me. So I I am forever grateful for for that.
2: You know, it's interesting when you say that it wasn't the skin color, that there were other pieces. I think as a young adult, trying to tease out whether it is race that is causing the split or not. I'm not with that boyfriend anymore. It was a college romance. But it took me a long time to, to really try and make sure I'm not choosing the easy route here. Just because this is really hard, um, and so. What do you mean by that? Uh, you know, in in terms of extending a relationship that might have ended sooner, um, really trying to suss out: Am I breaking up with this person because it's time for us to break up, or am I breaking up with this person because this is just too hard? Right. You know? Not being in touch with my family, and my father died in the middle of all that, and my mom said I killed him, and you know oh, there was a lot of stuff that went on, um, and so I think that's that's something for us to think about is the the ways in which the overlay of race really have an impact on what decisions you're you're making and when you make them. Um, It was harder for me to break up with him than than it would have been otherwise because I wanted to make sure I'm not doing this because it's a tough situation um I'm you know I'm doing this because of uh, conditioning that he has or that it's not a good fit you know yeah yeah
1: Yeah. no that's I'm so glad that you that you're emphasizing that distinction right because we can't just say you know well then all of you know these are the words we want to be careful with right all never always you know none whatever right so like all people of color are just perfect or all white people are horrible or all you know like what no we're not this is not that conversation this is about everybody's an individual unique right and has their own imprinting from whatever ancestrally intergenerationally you know personal you know situations so um and you know they may also come into the world with a particular skin color that may or may not predispose you know them to a variety of other um situations so thank you for that um so moving ahead then from from that place uh in the beginning um talk to me about why did you end up starting this class because you've been doing this work for you had been doing this work for two decades um, this online class that you offer for a month. It's about a hundred bucks. It's, you know, relatively affordable. Um, and and who is it for? Who would take it? <clears throat> Excuse me. And what could they expect in it?
2: The reason I started it, it was uh, born out of what a friend of mine called my summer of rage, uh, the summer of 2015, which was really sparked by the Charleston massacre. And what happened after that, I, I first felt a sense of despair because I had been doing the work for 30 years, and here we were, you know, in the, in the summer of 2015, and this is still happening. Um, but I got angry, and I got angry in a pretty unproductive way with people who were on my Facebook page, for example, who were saying, I'm colorblind, or all the things that I've heard all through my life that have irritated me, they just erupted in rage in that summer, and I decided at one point that this was not healthy for me, which in fact it was not, um, but that I could either continue to be angry and lash out at people for being ignorant, or I could try and teach them. And so I, I, it was um, an amazing summer for me um, of sitting down and saying, okay, what would I teach people? What would I have them know and understand and see differently as a result of taking this class? Uh, So I I set up four weeks of class. The first week is around structural racism. I really wanted uh, white people in particular to understand the history of racism in this country, the fact that we're founded on racist principles. Um, And I really wanted folks in the class to be overwhelmed by the sheer magnitude of the issue in that first week, which they are, uh, you know, every time I teach the class, there's a, wait a minute, hold on, this is too much, it's too much information. Mm -hmm. I really designed it to be too much information, to be overwhelming in a um, pretty significant
1: way. And Uh, can we just pause there for a moment mm -hmm. and from your view, define racism? Oh, racism for me is all about structural and
2: systemic uh, systems that have been put into place to keep uh, people of color in a certain uh, place in the society. And I. Uh, while I'm interested in individual prejudices and in, implicit bias and that sort of thing, I'm most interested in the systemic and structural ways in which we perpetuate this system of, uh, of white supremacy over people of color. And so that first week is all about that. It's giving example after example in, in different fields, education, housing, you name it, the criminal justice system. Um, and then that week is followed up with a, a week on white, white privilege, which is, a, as you know, a term that sparks all kinds of uh, you know, reaction from white people in particular but we really look at what is the system of privilege that we inherit and that we live under and that we benefit from. And how can we use that white privilege to end the very system of white privilege that it it comes out of. Um, So white privilege and white fragility is the focus for the second week, really diving into that and understanding and seeing how it plays out in the class. I mean, I think what happens in this class is what happens when I do face-to-face work, and that is very early on, white people will stand up and say, you know, well, we need to do something about this. We have to do something about this. And the, the response that I always have is, no, you actually need to sit in racialized discomfort for a little while. You need to feel the discomfort of this in order to make good decisions about what you're going to do about it, um, which is not a popular um <laughs> response necessarily. Mm-hmm. Because I think we want to go right to problem solving. And I talk in the class about how problem solving is not the highest form of engagement that we can have. And yet we stop there a lot of times. So the white fragility and white privilege week is a, a week that sparks all kinds of conversations about shame and guilt and And frankly, emotions that do nothing to help people of color. So so I I like to have people sit in that muck for a while and get past the idea that their feelings have to be tended to um, in order for them to see what work needs to be done. The third week is uh, the myth of colorblindness, because I hear this from a lot of people. Oh, I'm not prejudiced. I'm colorblind. So I I did a series of, um, I think, really powerful interviews for all the weeks, but in this week in particular, there were two uh, young men that I interviewed that I think really got at what happens when you say you're colorblind, uh, two men of color.
1: And then the- the Colorblind, a person saying that I don't see color, it doesn't matter if you're black or white or anything else in between. Right. What is that-
2: it's a negation of who the they are you know first of all uh, for, first it's a it's a lie because physiologically you do see color. Um, I think what happens is we we confuse noticing difference with making a judgment and so, we want to pretend we don't see difference because that means that we're making a judgment and we have to tease apart those two things yeah. that I can notice difference without making a judgment.
1: And I just want to pause there for a moment and just underscore for listeners because many of whom um, are, are listening are friends of the Be Here Now Network uh, and this is a collection of mindfulness and spirituality-based podcasts and um, you know, this podcast is sort of extending that into... Um, mindful, uh, applied mindfulness is what I like to call it. You know, how do we, once we learn that we can observe without judging, um, then what do we do? (laughs) <laughs> so it's not about problem solving, it's about discernment and about wisdom mm-hmm. and wise action. And you started by saying that you, when you were in Sri Lanka, um, you know, were with these Buddhist monks and, you know, obviously you understood and with this Quaker perspective also from college, um, what it's like to have not just the kindness and compassion component, which is critical, but also to have this, um, this awareness and this mm-hmm. separation of, you um, the awareness and then checking in on how do I feel about this. So as this applies to skin color with colorblindness, we're saying, actually notice this person is constructed in a certain way. Mm -hmm. It may may not be the same as me. And whether or not I have a feeling about that, am I spiritually bypassing, so to speak, by saying, oh, I'm colorblind by jumping to, oh, I don't see color. I just treat you the same as I would treat anyone. And as you said, that negates their own uniqueness, whatever that is, because it's physiologically Mm -hmm. also incorrect, and also kind of takes off the table, like anything that they might have experienced that might have been negatively impacting them or their lives or their ancestors based on, um, based on the color of their skin. So as you said earlier, that individual lens as opposed to that, you know, sort of more structural lens. So I just wanted to put a pause there and just sort of recognize that this is what mindfulness in action looks like is what you're look is what you're asking right now.
2: Oh, I love that. Thank you for, for sharing that. And I do think my Buddhist study and my study in the Quaker College have a lot to do with how I approach this work for sure. So I I've I not had
1: anybody point that out before, so thank you. <laughs> well, it's just the way I see it because it's the present moment attention to what's actually here without judging it, right? And without clinging to it, pushing it away or zoning out about it. Yeah, I mean, if it's ignorance and you're zoning out and you don't want to see it, and that's what colorblindness is, and that's what the Buddha says is the root of, you know, suffering, which is, you know, not being able to see clearly.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and colorblindness in that way is, well, you're maybe not acknowledging or seeing clearly what's actually here.
2: And you, I think you are, and you're denying it. You know, it, it's an interesting, um, because the discomfort is too real. And the fact that I would have to face my own bias about, about this person based on skin color, for example, um, you know, that's hard for, for us to do. And I think sitting in this discomfort is really hard for us to do as well. Yeah. Uh, One, we're rewarded in this culture for for forging ahead and solving things. Um, But two, I think this this question that I raised earlier really is the crux of it. And that is, can I notice difference without making a judgment in my head or out loud? Uh, Either one.
1: Or even notice that there's a judgment arising, but have the awareness to notice that there is a judgment around it. Right. Right. Exactly. So like, there's this thing that I'm noticing, then there's the way I feel about it, which in, you know, mindfulness or Buddhist terms, they would call the Vedana, the feeling tone, how you're, you know, what's the, what's the quality of, of, mm-hmm. of the, the, the thing that you're noticing, you know, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral or whatever. And um, aversive energy or clinging energy. Right. Uh, and then, and then there's the next step, right. Of, of kind of, what do I do? But if you can be with those, if you can check those out, there's the thing. There's how I feel about the thing. None of those are me. None of those are the thing. They're just other steps, right? They're little right. chunks on the train, and then and then what happens? Yeah. Then it kind of can get interesting or curious, you know, about what's next for possibility. I think.
2: Yeah, and I think curiosity is a great word for it. You know how can I how can I live in a spirit of curiosity, um, as opposed to judgment, becomes an important question.
1: Yeah. Around this work. Yeah. Okay. So sorry, I interrupted you, but keep on. Yeah. Um, I
2: don't remember what I was talking about. Well, you were on the,
1: <laughs> Sorry, you were on your class weeks. And so we were talking about oh, white privilege yeah. and white fragility and those terms and people getting stuck in a shame spiral or feeling as though their feelings are needing to be tended to. And then you're going to go to the next step.
2: Yeah. So colorblindness is the third week. And the last week is how to be an effective ally. You know, it's it's what's the ask? What what are people of, of color asking for us to do, and what do we need to do and want to do around these issues? What's helpful and what's not helpful? What's right helpfulness around this issue? I think is the question, and uh, and so we explore what that is, and also we explore, um, you know, how do I how do I maintain this focus uh, over a period of time? Because as you know, this is not a four week okay, now I've done it, you know, and now I'm I'm educated and I am uh, skilled enough to go out and change the world. It's really an ongoing process of education. So how do I maintain the focus uh, that I have around these issues? What's the why for it in me? And that's that's how we end the class. And, and we also end in the last call that we have with, Um, a moment for folks to say this is the the next step i'm going to take because i think it's easy to say oh i'm going to go out and i'm going to change my whole community but uh that's a great thing to aim for but what's that first step that you're going to take what's the really manageable uh, even small step that will take you in that direction and i think um, we have to start there that that's my impression
1: Yeah, and one of the Dharma teachers at New York Insight um, that I, uh, you know, would often um, learn from, uh, Gina Sharp, uh, I remember a few years ago when she was teaching heavily there, she was asking, you know, so what can you do? What can you do? right and at the time i didn't before i started doing some of this work i really didn't have a good answer because i was also sort of in the dark um and i really didn't know what i didn't know even though i have this mixed ethnic background even though i have been um the subject of microaggressions and i have all this intersectionality in terms that even some of our listeners may not totally be familiar with but it just means that there's a lot of different things happening it's not just a monolithic Mm -hmm. Um, you know identity really it means that I'm Haitian Dominican and Italian it means that I'm a minority and it means that I'm also have a lot of white skin privilege it means that I have an Ivy League education and it means that I grew up uh, with a working class mindset and you know a variety of different things and so um, anyway but you were going to say something go on. Oh, I can't remember. <laughs> okay, sorry. I had you. I had you mesmerized there for a moment. <laughs> sure. You did. I was hypnotizing you with my <laughs> with my uh, multi ethnic uh, verbosity. Um, so so let's so let's just go back then because I, I think you've said a lot about how the class is structured. But one of the things that struck my attention is this piece about folks not wanting to um, sit. In the discomfort, Um, so it's sort of uh, what one of my friends calls the newfound wokeness wants to go out there and be like, "Whoa, you know, let's change the world." And we're like, "No, you need to actually like just, yeah, right." Um, Because where is that energy coming from? What's the intention of it? Is it to escape your own pain, or is it to really help others? And you have to really sit with that in order to be able to discern it. Right, Right. you do, yeah. And then learn the tools for self-regulation, which is sort of some of the work I do with folks, um, so that you can increase your capacity for the discomfort without feeling like you're getting flooded or just, you know, going into quicksand. So from the mindfulness perspective, I think we also look at um, urge surfing and we look at, you know, discomfort tolerance, right? Like, how can I, you know, do the thing or be with the thing, but not have to have more of the thing, you know, or, or, or none of the thing, right? Um, and so how does that show up in terms of what happens with people when they kind of notice what they've been missing about mm, the history of race in the United States and, you know, 450 years of, uh, frankly, oppression and systemic injustice? What, w- what happens when you're inviting them to kind of just sit with it?
2: I think the first thing that happens is they make a choice about what they do at, at a hot spot at an edge. And my take on learning is that anything you do at that hot spot is really valuable. So if your first inclination as you're being exposed to all this is to flee and to run away from it, that's great. It's just really good information for you that that's what your operating system is based on. If your idea of, sitting in discomfort is to really sit in it and to immerse yourself in it. That's fantastic too, because that's how you process discomfort. So I try not to demonize what people's response is, but to say any response that you have to this material is a valid, meaningful response. That said, I think my experience says to me that over these years, I've been doing this work both in person and online the first thing that, that white people, a lot of white people tend to do is center their own pain around these issues and um, and make that the focus. You know, how could I have not known this? And I'm angry at the fact that I didn't know this. And I think that that's a, you know, all of these are valid responses, but at some point you have to move past that to really be helpful in the process. And I think. A, you know, there are a number of people who stay centered, who, who want their pain or their shame or their advocacy or their allyship to be the center of the equation. And I, I think that that's a, a falsehood. It's, a, it's, it's not the right place for us to sit in this discomfort, if that makes sense. So I yeah. try to move people, you know, from that center space to say, this is actually not about you, even though you, you've you created it and you perpetuate it, what we're doing next is not about you. It's it's about opening, mm-hmm. uh, listening more, listening a lot more. Um, and and I think operating out of choice and opportunity and not just a, out of a fix-it mindset, which kind of circumvents or bypasses, as you said, the pain. Um like, yeah. I think one of the questions that's really powerful for me is to say, who do I want to be in this situation? You know, who who is it that I want to be in this situation and what wants to happen here? And a lot of times what wants to happen here is counterintuitive to the uh, white supremacist way of dealing with anything that gets in their way, you know, which is being very productive and very, you know, get the flip charts out and get the markers out and let's make a plan and let's do a strategic plan and um this is something different from that we're we're this is a complexity not a complicated problem and there's a big difference between those two and when when i work with groups or when i have individuals come through the class i think more often than not i can see that we're looking at this issue of racism as if it is just a complicated problem Um, and a complicated problem is solvable you 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 make a plan and you solve it. A moon launch is a complicated problem. So you can you can get more expertise on your team and you can solve that. Um, racism is a complexity, and so it's not solvable in that way. We walk into it in a different way. And, and part of my goal in doing the work is to get people to walk into it in a different way, to, to have a different relationship with racism, uh, not just to look at it as a, as a complicated problem to solve. But as something to live into and through, and that's a
1: fundamental different. That's fundamentally a different way of looking. To live into and through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So let's just sit with that for a minute. To live into and through racism, not just a problem to solve. Right. So that acknowledges the reality of racism. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Pause. And then it also invites inquiry. Right. As well as checking around, okay, so here's this whole big puzzle and I'm a piece in it. Right. And so how does that How does that play out? And if I bring awareness and intentionality to that, can I have a little more agency in terms of what I'm bringing to my piece of the puzzle? Right. Um, And how then that might, you know, like the butterfly's wings, they, you know, influence the, you know, waves else, you know, miles and miles away. How do I influence that, Mm -hmm. the system? Right, that we're all a part of. I mean, I think that that's, you know, we keep using this term white supremacy and maybe I should ask you to define that from your perspective also because I think some people are like, white supremacy, that's not, what are you talking about? And they get all, you know, knickers in a knot.
2: It's the same kind of knicker in the knot syndrome that comes with white privilege and white fragility. Um, I think, you know, once we can identify and speak to and say the words white supremacy, it's clear that the, the structural racism and systemic racism that we see around us, and this is not something that we can believe in or not believe in because it's fact. It's not a, a belief system, it's fact. Um, once we begin to, to really understand the systems that have been put into place and that continue to be perpetuated uh, to, to keep whites on top of the system, Um, I think speaking the words white supremacy become very important for us, you know, that we need to name what it is that's happening and that we're complicit in it and that I benefit from it.
1: Yeah. And I just want to pause there too, because I was taking a class with Joy DeGruy, who is um, uh, a black uh, social justice warrior, um, if you will. And, you know, her point about this, I think is that, it's based on, you know, it's based on superiority. I mean, supremacy to be superior necessarily, whether it's patriarchy and you're talking about gender, patriarchy as a system really is, is the parent of racism, if you will, yeah. um, right? So it's sort of like concentric bubbles, if you will, um, because it's the systemic structure of, uh, as Gloria Steinem said, you know, ranking and not linking. Right. Mm-hmm. So when we're looking at things of, so if white is best, anything else is bad or worse. And so I need to maintain that I'm best. Right. So I need to stay whiter so I can stay better. And then that would, from that, you know, fall all these other things of, well, then we have to just have whites only. And of course, we know the Jim Crow laws and we know segregation and we have to be redlining, which means that we have to keep people out of certain neighborhoods and gerrymandering and, you know, all these things and they can't inherit wealth or accumulate wealth. And so we're not going to give them home loans um, and things like right. that. And I'm just curious about <clears throat> that. We talk a lot in, in, in mindfulness and in Buddhism about fear, about fear being the root of so many things, unchecked fear, unaware fear, untolerated internal you know, sensing of fear. Can you speak to that at all about how that plays into this um, white supremacy? What are, what, what, are they, what are people so afraid of is gonna happen if like we all have equity?
2: Well, they're gonna lose their piece of the pie, no matter how large or small that pie is. I mean, Trump, this this whole environment that we find ourselves in with Trump as president, the the rallies that he holds and the ways in which people respond to him are all fear-based. His, his whole shtick is fear-based. Um, there's a fear that I'm not going to get what, is, what, is, what I deserve if we have more people of color in this country, for example. So we're, that's how we get to the place where we have concentration camps at the, at the borders. Um, so we're seeing it played out really writ large at this point in our history. And it has been before and it will be again. Um, but I think we have to pay attention to how did this happen? And how is this fear being unleashed by this tyrant really? Um, and, and what is the response of people who are trying to continue to do this work and who are trying to be mindful around the process and who are um, you know, not, not jumping to problem solving necessarily, but walking into this in a different way, not looking to solve this problem, uh, but to have a different relationship with it, to learn from it. Um, I don't know if you know James Carse's work on finite and infinite games, Uh, but what he talks about is that we play with our lives, either finite or infinite games and a finite game we play to win. So there's a winner and a loser And, and there are rules to follow and the game has a beginning and an end and we play to win that game. So football is a great example of a finite game and an infinite game we play to learn and so the whole idea of an infinite game is to keep the game going. So Hacky Sack is a great example of an infinite game where the whole point is to keep the thing going and to learn from how you're playing and engaging in the game. Um, Americans do very poorly at infinite games. We do much better at finite games like, you know, Pepsi slogan, beat Coke. That's a finite game. And, um, and so... I think to enter into this conversation around race in the largest context that we can put it is to say, I'm going to play an infinite game around this. Whatever happens, I'm going to learn from it and incorporate that learning, and I'm going to keep doing that. Uh, so that I'm not demonizing what's happening, but I'm incorporating it in, in in terms of what I'm learning from it, if if that makes sense to you. I think that At, distinction is
1: No, I, I think it's beautiful. And I also often emphasize that, you know, things aren't so fixed that we're all process anyway. And so yeah. we're really not I mean the delusion or really I think the fundamental delusion is is that we're that we're anything but process. Right. Um, and so um, you know, people will be like, Well, wait, this hair clip is, you know fixed and i'm like it's well sort of at this you know little juncture it kind of is right and mm-hmm. on the other hand it's kind of not right and 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 I, and that's not to say that plastics like this one don't take a thousand years to mm, you know deconstruct, disintegrate disintegrate right you know what i'm saying so there's that awareness too yeah uh, and, and, the, and the reality of that, right, and, and whether or not the way that this um, supremacist mindset is also affecting, um, you know, our, our home planet, our, you know, our, our connection to that which sustains us. Um, the 19th, yesterday, because this is June 20th, 2019, that we're taping this, although it will air later, obviously, um, was Juneteenth. And a lot of people know what that date is and what it means. A lot of people don't. Um, Ta-Nehisi Coates, who wrote um, a book called Between the World and Me, uh, and has written extensively about the case for reparations, uh, spoke for Congress yesterday on this issue, and was told by um, Mitch McConnell that, Yay, you know, nobody here who's alive, you know, has anything to do with what happened in slavery back in the day. And, um, you know, as a um, very well-spoken author, uh, he was able to articulate um, and elucidate very specifically some of the reasons why uh, reparations actually are uh, needed and meaningful. Um, mm-hmm. So, if you don't mind, take a moment, uh, if you could, to explore a little bit about what Juneteenth is about, um, why it came into being, and 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 sort of what your thoughts or reflections were on um, what happened yesterday and in general.
2: Yeah, I haven't seen the the testimony. I've read about it, so I'd be interested to hear your take on
1: on the testimony a little bit more. Um, uh, as you can imagine, it would be. It basically just detailed the case of a lot of the work that you're teaching in the class in terms of, as you said, the facts or the history, yeah. and who are the inheritors of, as you said, a system of exploitation, rape, um, genocide, in the case of not only um, African-Americans, but in indigenous people here uh, in this country, and um, and a host of other egregious uh, Behaviors that our country is founded on, uh, frankly, economically. I uh,
2: I did see on uh, Facebook today that that um, Google didn't do a Juneteenth Google Doodle. I don't know if you saw this, mm. uh, and that somebody took it upon themselves to to make one mm. on their own. Um, so these are the the kind of core um, the core. Constructs that we're looking at as validation of something like a Juneteenth.
0: Mm-hmm. I don't know if that
2: makes sense, but I, I started. Absolutely. Yeah, I started thinking about how w- what comes into our um, into our social media feed is what defines reality to some degree.
1: And so, just to say, Juneteenth is when um, slaves found out they were free. Yeah, yeah. June nineteenth. I mean, I mean. Yeah. Now known so, as Juneteenth.
2: The, the Google doodle was uh, that was created was a really powerful or the one that was created for Google since they didn't deign to do one was a really powerful uh, image around that. And, um, you know, I, I have conflicting feelings about how much we put on social media in terms of the knowledge that we have or don't have around these issues, but that's, uh, not to say the the Google Doodle is an important thing because it does bring up uh, pieces of history that have been forgotten. Lots of uh, women of color, for example, who are scientists, have been featured in the the google doodle i don 't know why I 'm so fixed on this. I think it's because it's such a um, it 's such a visual representation of what
1: we care about or what we know about in this country and, and also th- for me, it brings in a question of who within Google who determined such things never occurred to or who within Google who may have had the courage to bring this up as an idea was shot down. Yeah.
2: When you think about Independence Day, I mean, uh, I'll be interested to see the Independence Day Google doodle. Um, So it's not the end all be all in terms of knowing about these issues, but I think we have to look for these kind of um, Uh, hallmarks of what the culture is talking about. And so many people are talking about Fox News, for example. That's become the hallmark for a lot of people around what's going on in this country. And it's dangerous. I think that's a dangerous thing for us to um, hang our hat on, is looking at this state TV, and I'm going off on a rant (laughs) a little bit.
1: Well. I mean, I used to work for Fox, so I, I, you know, I've reported for them and and have had my own experiences there uh, in terms of what and how, as a reporter, I was, you know, being guided in terms of my lines of inquiry and the ways in which I would go about um, being able to access people that they wanted on the air at the time I think um, Mitt Romney was running for president. And um, you know, and also for Sinclair, which is a very uh, conservative, powerful you know media group, Tribune, also. Um, and so I've worked for um, a lot of media companies, mass media companies, that have kind of come at things from a certain uh, angle. And you know, that was something that came out of um, Roger Rails' who was the former, now deceased, head of Fox News and Brainchild. Uh, you know, he was Nixon's advisor back in the day Mm -hmm. and um, was really an amazing strategist, but really understood to go back to this notion of fear, what it was and kind of could sniff it out in people, kind of could sniff out like, you know, where are people's, um, I've heard someone in marketing say, where are their pain points, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so like kind of feeding that and then to take that against what Rumi, the um, poet would call, you know, fear is the cheapest room in the house. Mm-hmm. So it's cheap, like, you know, you get your Doritos or your Twinkies or whatever, but ultimately how nourishing is it? And and what's the cost, not only to to whomever else, but to you too long-term, right? Do you have the equivalent of diabetes or, you know, cancer or something like that because that's what you're feeding? Um,
2: well, you know, it's interesting because the number one thing that people talk about when they are asked at the beginning of my class, why are you taking this class? Um, they talk about their fear, their fears, and their fears are of not knowing what to do or not doing the right thing or not knowing enough or, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a lack that they're, that they're talking about. Um, and I think that the, the lack piece of fear is a really powerful grounder for a lot of people, you know, that you asked the question earlier, what, what are people af- afraid of, uh, afraid of, and they're afraid of losing something something that has meaning for them, something that has uh, made their lives what what their lives are right now, which in many cases is whiteness.
1: So interesting what you're saying, because when you say, you know, um, the fear piece, I'm thinking of, well, what if we honored the fear? And to use Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communications, you know, sort of piece, what if we looked into the need or what's under Mm -hmm. the fear? And when you said, you know, afraid of losing something, I'm thinking, Right. So there's an afraid of losing what you're perceived as holding on to in the first place, which we know we really actually don't have if we really orient toward being processed and not fixed anyway. I mean, we do in the sense that, yes, you can like own a hair clip or a house or a car. And yet at the same time, really what's in our possession, our actions, our integrity, our character that we certainly have. Um, When we bring awareness to it, intentionality around that, um, we can determine more about. But that afraid of losing something, how that can be transformed into, well, what will we gain, Mm -hmm. right? And sort of what is lost when we are living in the place of, I'm afraid of giving up what I have, as opposed to, I'm opening up to the possibility of how, if there were more flow, to use another popular term, I could Mm -hmm. also be receiving an abundance. But what that would require um, it would be a certain amount of faith that that might be possible, and um, I feel like whether you're spiritual or religious or whatever it is, that sense of curiosity about possibility um, and living in the uncertainty and the mystery of whatever that is, even if it's not something that we know to be specific, right? There's no like tit for tat. Like, okay, well, if I if I don't s- stop holding, you know, if I if I if I stop holding and I turn to abundance, then everything will manifest and yeah, maybe, you know, that's, that's what they say. Right. But how do we like, how do we kind of work the edge of that if we don't just dive in? Right.
2: You know, it's interesting what you're saying, because when I started teaching this class, I wasn't teaching it with Victor Lee Lewis, who has now become my teaching partner. And I named it hard conversations An introduction to racism. And when I got in touch with Victor he kind of (laughs) turned it on its head a little bit. He said, you know, yes, these are hard conversations, but what you gain from them is so powerful and what you open yourself up to is so powerful. So, you know, I was all about this is going to be tough and this is going to be hard to do and we've got to do this work. And he was all about, there's joy in this.
1: Beautiful.
2: It was gorgeous. It was really gorgeous. So I had to reframe my own take on what this work is about because for me it had been hard you know it had there had been pleasures in it and getting seeing people have ahas but not to the degree that victor was saying which was this is life bringing to everyone involved mm. you know not it's life bringing to the white people who are trying to do this work
1: and so we need to really celebrate the joy that comes out of it as well which i thought was really beautiful Mm, that is so beautiful. And again, it's making me think of like, okay, so if we're moving away from the fear or from the fear, what are we moving into? Okay, it can be this great morass of, you know, the mystery, so to speak. But really, it's kind of connection, mm-hmm. right? Feeling more connected to others and to self. And trusting, to use polyvagal theory and physiology states, which I also talk a fair amount about, is um, trusting that that's okay, that you're safe there too. Yeah. Right, so it's really this business of connection, or as you say, joy, which is just this elan and this vivre, which I feel like so many folks who are so neurotic and they just are lost in <laughs> their own stuff. I'm just like, whoa,
2: yeah, and that you can do serious work like this and be joyful about it. I think that's the other piece for me. Yeah, that there is a joy to it, and there's a there there are rewards to it. You know, I, I see the impact that it has on people, so.
1: Yeah. yeah, and you, and you don't just offer the online class, you do a bunch of other things. So talk about those camps and writing things and stuff like that that you do.
2: Yeah, I do. Um, I do still do a lot of social justice work inside organizations. So I'll go and train a diversity council for, an, for a corporation, for example. Um, most of my work is experiential. So it's movement oriented and um, not at all talk oriented. Uh, I usually take language away from people in order to reveal things that otherwise wouldn't be revealed. Um, and I also have a camp that I started seven years ago. It's called Life as a Verb Camp. It's named after one of my books. And it brings together people from around the world to have four days together. It's a, we talk about and focus on courage, creativity, community, and compassion. And um, it's a magical place where people come and they make art and they write and they listen to poets. I always have poets as our um, main speakers because I want to support poets' work in the world and hire them to.
1: <laughs> i a poet. That's why. Yeah, I'm saying.
2: Come on, I'll go. Yeah, uh, it's fantastic. We've had amazing people there. We had Naomi Shihab Nye and Ellen Bass one year, and. Uh, Andrea Gibson. and It's just amazing. Toy Derricott, um, And so I think poets really teach us how to see the world in a different way. So while there are a lot of people who say I don't do poetry or I don't like poetry, um, to be in the presence of someone whose words are so moving and so meaningful is is powerful. So I have a bunch of converts to poetry as a result of doing the camp. Yay, Patty. Yeah. And I do writing retreats and things like that as well. But uh, my main focus is really the the racism work and, and trying to, to say to myself, what would be the next step there? What would be helpful for people yeah. to, to learn?
1: And in the last five years that you've been offering the class, what have you noticed um, in terms of the class? What have you noticed in terms of society? Obviously, there's still egregious um structural, as you've said, um, you know, systemic uh, and increasingly uh, challenging policies uh, for uh, people of African-American descent in this country and also people of any other ethnicity or color Mm -hmm. that is, you know, white um, and Eurocentric. Tell me a little bit about sort of how this fits into what we're seeing today, how it's different from when you started the class.
2: Um, I think everything is more pointed today. Uh, There's more, seemingly more danger, even though there's been danger all along, I think, um, because policies are being changed, and we have concentration camps at our borders, and uh, we're at a pitch. We're at a definite pitch. Um, But what was, I I will say, what was really um, heartening to me when I started this class is I thought maybe 50 of my friends would sign up for the first class, you know, just to support me. And 3,500 people signed up. And what that said to me was people want to do something and they want to be involved and they want to learn. And they're just been looking for places that they can actually do that. Um, so I'm really thankful that there are other online classes that are coming up, that there are many places where you can go and get, um, join in this conversation and learn things that, that might not otherwise cross your radar screen. Um, so we've trained probably 15,000 people so far in the last four or five years uh, with this class. And I'm heartened by that. You know, I'm heartened by the 75 year old woman who took the first class and wrote me and said, I'm 75 years old. And you've, you know, this has changed my life. I just wish I had taken it when I was 35. And, Mm. You know, there's, there's great, um, I think, coming from a place with the Charleston massacre where I felt really impotent to do anything about that. Uh, it felt great to be able to put something together that, that people would walk away from changed in some way. And, uh, and now what we see is the conversation in the classroom Uh, takes on a greater urgency because of the policies that are being changed in this country right now, uh, where we see things going. So it's, it's a much more urgent conversation um, than it was in the beginning.
1: Mm, Right, right, right. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. And, um, and just to also say to the 75 year old woman too, what isn't taught in the classroom, right? Say, you know, in the public classroom um, is, is, you got to find it out, but it's hard to find it out when whatever's put in the canon doesn't include that. Yeah. Right? And so when things are curated in such a way, systemically and structurally across the board to say, you know, well, these are the best, best authors, or this is the right history, or, you know, um, I love the Latin phrase that Kip Tiernan, a community organizer and the first um, founder of the First homeless shelter for women in Boston used to say, you know, qui bono all the time. She would say, who's benefiting here? Who's benefiting by structuring the class this way? Who's benefiting by structuring the, the learning this way? Um, yeah. And I just wanted to say thank you for that. And any closing thoughts, both as, as we sort of wind down about anything we've said today, anything you're doing or have coming up or have done, what you might like is what's your strong offer?
2: My <laughs> yeah, my strong offer at some point is going to be a, a summer institute that dives into um, really the the creative process involved in social justice work because I think we we push against things a lot so we want to do anti racism work which is a negative direction of intention and pushing against something um, but I want to look at the the creativity inherent in Um, in doing this work and how we can use that spark or that energy or that joy or that understanding and knowing and wisdom to create something. So I I remember being asked at my alma mater to come do some anti-racism work and, and just bristling at the thought of pushing against something as opposed to moving in the direction of creating something. But it's very hard to say what that thing is that we want to create. There's not a nomenclature for that as as succinct as anti-racism work. So I'd really like to dive into the the ways in which this work plays out in creative creative forces. So what am I creating? Whether it's art or music or um, better training or whatever it is, you know, what is the genesis of that next step that we're going to take?
1: Yeah, beautiful. What's generative and emergent?
2: Yeah.
1: yeah yeah what's um to use eugene gendlin's focusing language what comes freshly mm-hmm. you know what's new
2: yeah
1: yeah beautiful i love that um patty die i uh invite everyone to um check out her website it'll be on the links and everything um and i just want to thank you for all of you've done all you've done and all that you will be doing Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to
2: talk with you. I really love what you've brought out in this conversation. So thank you. I've learned a lot.
1: (laughs) Thank you. So have I. Take good care.